So we opened up our series on Galatians um, last week with a read-through, and hopefully that was of benefit to see the larger argument um, of the book and how um, the book is flowing and what's actually going on at work uh, in the argumentation and the presentation of the book uh, or the letter to the Galatians. Uh, what was just read for you is, um, as you were following along, chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, and if you thought that's we're just going to get there that quickly, you were wrong. We're slowing down, believe it or not, right? So we're not ready even to, after reading it, to jump into verse 1 yet. We have to first do a proper overview of the book. We have to consider it again. You're like, well, you just did that last week. No, we read it last week, and that is helpful in the overall. But then I want you to keep your text open, if you would, and uh, show you some moving parts of the book, hopefully, and present a consistent whole And then, yes, next week we will be in verse 1, and we'll tackle 1 and maybe 1a. We'll we'll see how far we get. But um, to set the tone of the book, hopefully, again, you picked it up last week. Paul's relationship, just to wrap your mind around the approach to the book, his relationship with the churches in southern Galatia is a very personal one. And again, you picked up on the tone. Um, It's perhaps his most intense Uh, of the New Testament, the tone of the book, if you sat down and you just read through it yet again, you'll see and we'll watch piece by piece, argument by argument, seems very intense. And it is. Maybe we would ask why, and that's what we will work to make clear for a long time going forward. Why so intense? He hits the door running, and I don't want to steal my opportunity with you next week, but notice just how he opens, and again, you'll you'll feel the weight of this as it moves forward into the argument of the book, but he's throwing down, so to speak, at minute one. Paul, an apostle. And then notice his very next rhetorical move, not from men, nor through a man. Again, that will be clearer as to what he's getting at when he takes down the people who are throwing him, so to speak, under the bus in Galatia. But why is he getting so intense throughout the course of the book is because, and this is what I want to sow with you today and kind of plant in your mind and challenge you with, even though it's an overview of the book, I want you to consider this thought deeply. It will really be the theme for a long time as we work through this epistle. And it is that if you change the gospel, that is the good, news now, the good news announcement of Jesus Christ. If you change the gospel the tiniest bit, then you lose it completely. As, as a Protestant, an evangelical, You need to have that mindset very clear. The way that you hear the gospel, the way that you talk in concert to the Bible, your own individual mystical, should we call it, walk with the Lord. That you must be clear at all times in your conscience on the gospel. What it is that makes it gospel In other words, if we were just to take gospel and call it good news, what is it that makes it good? It's a newsworthy announcement. But but, but what you want to get at is what makes it a good news announcement and not a bad news announcement. 
Because if we take what is delivered to us throughout the text of Scripture and we tweak it, or we change it just a bit, we will lose it all together. Sometimes it seems cranky. And maybe it seems like overly zealous in our apologetics to not be so open-minded to other forms of religion or other thoughts of what's appropriate morally. And then the, the, we have some sort of uh, complex feeling guilty for taking a stand for something that's right, for holding fast and, and perhaps furious for what we consider to be the good news, not a good news announcement, the good news announcement available. Paul takes the same tact very intensely because, again, if you change, this will be his position in the book. If you change the gospel the tiniest bit, you lose it completely. Back to the idea of what's going on in the book. Remember, Paul was a church-planting missionary So he was directly involved in establishing, structuring, overseeing the theology, the practice, and the leadership of these assemblies. Look in verse 8 if you're there. And again, I'm going to jump in and out of various texts along the way. And if you could just do your best and and kind of pick up wherever quickly. Verse 8, it says, but even if we, this is his appeal. We'll get into obviously much later. We'll get here. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed. The point being, Paul laid its foundation. The foundation of these assemblies. It's a very personal and intimate issue for Paul, how these churches perform. He established them. He founded them. These are some of the earliest congregations in his missionary endeavors that he founded. So when he says, if someone preaches to you a different gospel than the one we, very personally, we preached to you, let that person be accursed. Not because I'm better, so to speak, as Paul for a teacher. It's rather, it's the content alone stands alone. It cannot be tweaked. It cannot be more nuanced. It's the content that must stand, not the delivery. When Paul then, after having established these churches, the assemblies of this southern Galatia region, when he left the region with an established and particularized church in place, particularized meaning there is some sense of eldership, there's leadership in place, a church or a congregation or a network of churches in the area can work for their own, can stand alone, as it were, as congregations. When he left them in that condition, he continued to monitor He continued to supervise those congregations through the letters of correspondence that he wrote to him. And that's what you have here in the letter to Galatians. It's his supervisorial role over these congregations or his monitoring their theology and practice that is here for us to read and to benefit from. What prompts the letter to be written is the grave concern for the churches in this area. Paul has heard what's taking place. And that is, these folks, after he has left, are seemingly tolerating false teachers. And not only tolerating them, like allowing them to be around, but they are somehow aligning with them. And this is of grave concern to Paul. Again, he planted them. 
Um, I, 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 of course, I'm not an apostle, clearly, but I would think in terms of if I were to leave Redeemer someday, and I would always think back fondly of Redeemer, of course, and being a minister who was a part of planting this church, and then to find out that somehow um, a false teacher was your pastor who you called, and he took over the ministry of preaching at a church that I had been a part of planting. That would be deeply personal for me. Um, You know, you would get a fiery letter in the mail from me. (laughs) Hopefully somebody would stand up and read it out loud. Um, Because, yeah, maybe time and space has moved, but your heart for those people has not. You feel like you dug a straight pathway and you worked in and out to provide. And then it was just like, well, either way, we're going to move on. You're like, oh, really? And then to the content of what you're moving on to, the foundation of your faith, the orthodoxy of the gospel. This is a grave concern to Paul as one who founded these churches. And the, the ministers who have now come in, and we can call them just kind of ministers just to make it a more updated context for us. We can conceptualize it, hopefully, in the Redeemer example idea. Is that the ministers who have now come in, as Paul hears of them as he is now removed from these congregations, is they're not just, again, kind of, sort of misrepresenting Paul. They are directly opposed to him. And not only to him, and that is why when you see in the introduction, and he says immediately, Paul, an apostle, I'll have you know, absolutely not through men or from a man. Because essentially they're making an argument like we are like him and he is like us. Only we've got the, uh, the teaching clearer. We can present to you just like Paul can present to you. Paul got it from the apostles. We, we also are connected to the apostles. That's why you'll see later in the argument where he goes, no, 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 no. When I received my call, I did not immediately consent with the apostles. And then he'll say here in the introduction, I got my apostolic ministry directly through Jesus Christ. It wasn't something I'm getting secondhand from the apostles and then mediating to you so that me and the teachers who are now with you are on the same level. It's just merely semantics. Or maybe Paul heard what he thought he heard, but he got it wrong. And so Paul is, that, that, that's kind of the movement that Paul's distancing himself somewhat from the influence of the apostles as he writes chapter 2. Again, they're opposed to him as an apostle, and they're opposed to the orthodoxy that he teaches. By the time you get to chapter 4, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just cite it for you, but by the time you get to chapter 4, you see Paul's anxiety for this local church, or these churches, In chapter 4, after he's writing furiously through chapter 1, chapter 2, and the argument of chapter 3 is so robust, by the time he gets to chapter 4, he's exhausted. And he just comes out in chapter 4 and he says this, quote, I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. Again, I couldn't help but to contextualize it for me at Redeemer that we've been here 11 years And we'd like to think as ministers that we've helped move the goalpost for your faith. That we've helped. We've been a part of your growth. We've been a part of your your, your clarity. Um, Some weeks better than others. But we hope, in the big picture, overly we've been more helpful than not. And then to look back on it, I'll just pick one category of a million. You, you, you hire a Unitarian 
minister to take over Redeemer. You know, Trinity doesn't matter. It's not real. Fake news. Uh, let's get a Unitarian. Then maybe we would have the heart to say, we fear we labored over you in vain. You know, as you look back over the congregation, you say, in other words, it's with Paul, he says, I fear that I spent all my time with you in futility. Now, again, why? Why so harsh? Why would you say something like that to us, Paul? You planted us. We know you and you know us. Intimately so. We're of the first congregations that you planted as a church planting missionary. You with us and us with you. The days and the nights. Helping us form a particularized congregation. You know us by name. Why would you say something so harsh like, I am afraid as I look back on our relationship in my time with you. I am here today afraid. I have wasted my time with you. Why would you say something so harsh, so drastic? Because if you change the gospel the tiniest bit, you lose it completely. That's the severity that's at stake in the book. It's the very understanding of news. What's good news? What's fake news? What's bad news? Paul says if you take the good news and tweak it, you lose it. And that's what you're doing. Now, again, we need to appreciate a little bit as we look over it from a historical perspective. um, uh, Sometimes we struggle with that, right? Thinking of the church of the first century, oftentimes we contextualize the church as we read our Bibles as like a church like us. That is an assembly kind of governed and established the way that we are. But of course, that is not the case. We have the appreciation of 2,000 years of doctrinal development. Sometimes we read that back into the text and think, well, how could they have gotten that so wrong? Why would they even have thought that was okay? When we read Paul somehow admonishing, rebuking, or correcting someone, we stand there and think, whoa, wow, that's wild. But again, we have appreciation of 2,000 years of development to understand what is most aligned and clear with the text of Scripture. We have a canon that's been formed that we can read the entirety of the text. Again, if you think about the difficulty at this time of the development and the codification of the Christian faith, The early church started its life as a sect within Judaism. Think about that, a very minority report within Judaism. Yet by the end of the first century alone, it was becoming an almost exclusively Gentile movement. Think of that. It's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. But again, think of it as a small minority port of how the church began as nearly a sect within larger Judaism becoming Christian. And this small little Jewish group, largely by the end of 60 years' time, 60 years, it was largely by the end of that little, small, little traveling space from here to here, just this space alone, 60 years' time, it was nearly an entirely Gentile movement. Again, that is a massive cultural and historical shift within a very small movement. 
So by the time Paul is writing, our Lord died in roughly around the year 32 AD, right? Paul's writing this letter in about 50 AD. Think about how young Christianity is at this time. We need to remember in this context, and this will color the way that we read the book and the way that we understand the arguments. Remember also as Paul is addressing the issue, and you see it a little bit in chapter 2 where there, he, he cites that little dust-up between Jews and Gentiles where he confronted Peter. If you remember, we covered that last week as we read all the way through. And I oppose Peter to his face. Because he was acting hypocritically when there was, there was Jews and Gentiles present. Again, why is that a problem? Because there's a conflict within the church between Jewish and Gentile practice. Remember at this time that history, ethnicity, and culture was enmeshed with theological identity and belief. There was not clear division between a person's history and their belief, a person's ethnicity and their belief, a person's culture and their theological identity and belief. There was no what we have today, global citizenry. Your faith was deeply tied to time, deeply tied to people, and deeply tied to place. So think of it, a very distinct time, people in place, when the faith is beginning, and then all of that is different within 60 years. That would be a difficult struggle. When you think we embody, right now we embody the Christian faith, and then an influx of totally different cultures and histories, peoples and place come in through evangelism, and the church then begins to largely be almost exclusively comprised of a different people. Do you think that would be a struggle? Clearly so. What norms are appropriate for us? What way ought we to pray? How should we conduct worship? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ exactly? How does it impact this people? And how does it impact us distinctively? Because we've always been a distinct people. Now there's some sort of way in which we're doing what exactly? So quite naturally, there is a lot of cultural and theological struggle going on within the Christian church at this time. Paul is afraid. Afraid that he has labored over them in vain. Why? Because in the midst of the struggle, heretical teachers, claiming for themselves the name of Christian, as well as presenting their teaching to be inscribed with the gospel of Christ, during a time of struggle, they have crept in and they're seizing the opportunity. Again, look at chapter 4, verse 17. It's very confusing, right? If somebody came in and, 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 and we're kind of going through a very cultural and timely struggle about our faith, about our identity, about our worship, and Paul is not here on the ground, and someone comes in, or perhaps a group of men who come in in the name of Christian, and then they present, along with their teaching, that, 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 that there's a little bit of Christianity sprinkled in. The gospel that you heard from Paul is part here with us. In fact, we give you the pure part. We are in stride with the gospel of Christ that you've come to know. Look at chapter 4, as I said, verse 17. 
This is what Paul says to the men or the group of men who have crept in during this time of struggle. They make much of you. Right? They do. They probably make you feel good. They, they, they speak in a way that seems to make you a big deal. And I get that. It makes someone feel special. They make a big deal of you. But for no good purpose. See through the flattery. They want to shut you out. Out of what? Out of the gospel. Out of your freedom. That what, what, what they really want is that you make much of them. How so? How are they trying to make us make much of them? And how are they shutting us out from the gospel? How so? Because look at chapter 5, verse 11. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Because in that case, it, it, to, for one to be circumcised, to submit themselves unto circumcision in order that one might be saved. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. You can't have both grounds for justification. There is but one grounds of justification. If you submit to the grounds of circumcision, for justification and identity and union with Christ, you cease to submit to the grounds of the cross. And if I taught circumcision, that I somehow was like them and they were like me, why then would I still be persecuted for the cross? We're not the same. And they've got it deadly wrong. Their heresy is marked in a, in a principle twofold way. Number one, the heresies that we'll see throughout the book that Paul is beginning to strip down. And he'll begin to attack piecemeal, piece by piece, argument by argument. Is number one, that circumcision was necessary for salvation. That's functionally what they're teaching. That you, that, that you are to be circumcised in the flesh to be identified as the people of God, thereby to be in union even with the gospel of Christ. One must be circumcised. Chapter 5, verse 2, notice. Look, I, Paul, look, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Again, why so intense to say if someone takes circumcision, they don't have a lesser inheritance in Christ, they have no inheritance. Instead of saying that they have a lesser advantage, they have no advantage at all. 
Why such a, a, a black and white straight cut line? Shouldn't we just kind of nuance it a little bit? Shouldn't we be bridge builders and work it out? Not in orthodoxy, particularly the gospel. Is Paul's going to make the argument, again, to change the gospel the tiniest bit is to lose it all together. The second issue of heresy that they're spreading, and Paul is at great pains to correct, again, after taking stock of what he's hearing, of what they're teaching, and the correspondence, again, nearly distraught, Yet on fire, Paul, I'm afraid. I'm afraid as I take account of your confusion regarding the gospel that I have labored over you in vain. It's that serious. The second, uh, as I said, second principle um, that, that they're teaching, second heretical piece is number two, that a certain observance of the ceremonial law of Moses needs to be maintained. Again, I, I'm not exactly sure of the, this moving part here. Um, there, there, there's, there's a, that's why I say there's a certain observance of the ceremonial law of Moses that they're arguing needs to be maintained. Um, now, um, I haven't gotten to that section yet and being able to mine it all out, and I'll labor to do so, but um, here for sure there's some level of certain observance that needs to be performed. Again, not for prudence sake. Like, this is a prudential judgment we're going to make. We're going to simply observe X. Um, or let's work it out together as a community, and you say this, and we say that, and really it's of, uh, of tertiary, if at all, importance. So let's just work it out and make a good judgment that, that our faith and our community can, can participate in. Um, it, it's not of that kind of a, a, a principled judgment. It's not an application of simple wisdom. There's some sort of ceremonial attachment of the Mosaic law that is grounds, that's sharing in the grounds of someone's identity as a Christian. That's different than making a prudential judgment. And I won't wade off into the weeds, but I'll just gesture in the way of the weeds. You could say something like Christmas or Holy Days. That's a great one. If, if, you, if, you, if you want to get a bunch of reformed folk to just be obnoxious, get them together and you think they mostly are. <laughs> but, um, it, it, true. But, but if you really want to see them get obnoxious, even more than they naturally are, say something about Christmas and who should celebrate it and how. And just sit back, relax, have a drink and watch. It's nearly that ridiculous. Um, and, and yet, so... That's true. You know, should you be observing holy days? Seems not. What are you, Jewish? Um, you know, <laughs> you know. Um, again, and it digresses into dumpster fire. But th- th- there is here some measure of this issue, not, not on prudential judgment, but for grounds uh, of, ju- of one's identity and union and justification. Look at chapter 4. I- I'll note it for you beginning in verse 9. Uh, Paul says, but now that you have come to know God, and, and again, to the Reformed, as, as Paul puts it, or rather, to be known by God. Therein is a nuanced statement of great importance. 
How can you turn back again? He knows you. How then can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? To clarify, he goes on. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Again, the observance here being united to the role of slavery. And then he exacerbated, says, I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. I'm astonished. That's why he then later later says, it's like you're under a spell. Who has spell-bounded you? There's no way that this appeals. Who has bewitched you? To make you think that this is the gospel. Having been free, you want to be slaves. There's no way. Who is there and who has bewitched you? Again, he is adamant that this is no mere modification of what he has taught them. It's not a nuance and it's not a prudential judgment, it's an outright denial and rejection of the gospel. Um, Tim Keller uh, helpfully comments uh, to the note of the book. He says, quote, by insisting on Christ plus anything else as a requirement for full acceptance by God. Let, let me start over again. Th- this, this is, this is uh, exactly what Paul is getting at. A- and it's exactly what we need to endeavor to labor over this book for the church and for the gospel. By insisting on Christ plus anything else. Okay? Anything else being added. By insisting on Christ plus anything else as a requirement for full acceptance by God. If you want to be a real citizen, if you want union, if you want Christ and all of his benefits, not some of them, which you know that's impossible. He cannot be divided. Through the gospel, the vessel of faith that receives him, the empty vessel of faith that receives him, receives all of him. He cannot be divided. No one is in union in a halfway covenant. No one is in union in a partial relationship. You are either in union or you're not in union. You either have Christ or you don't. No one kind of does. And believers can often find themselves psychologically and spiritually feeling as though indeed I do only have part of him. Because I have these things that I just don't feel are forgiven. Feelings aside. You have all of him and all of his benefits. If you have him at all. Keller's comment, these teachers were presenting a whole different way 
of relating to God. Really? Is that, is, are you sure? By insisting on Christ plus anything else is a requirement, it's a totally different way to relate to God? Yes, Paul says. It's totally different. It's not kind of, sort of. We're not sharing or overlapping where there's maybe a little bit of a different judgment on this exegetical argument. No, it's not that. It's totally in opposition to the good news. It's bad news. It's news. We heard it. Yeah, it's bad news. Materially, essentially bad news. To mix law, works, self-confidence, self-worth with union in the gospel. Now, again, we may ask as we kind of wind down our moments, why would Judaizing Christianity, that is making Christianity a little bit more Jewish, appeal to those in the church in the first place? Well, Let me say this, Um, one author comments, the original followers of Jesus were all Jews, and they had no intention of being anything other than faithful and pious Jews. They continued to worship in the Jerusalem temple, obey the law of Moses, and to have a negative attitude towards Gentiles. This is initially in the first century, right? But we've moved 60 years. We're now almost an exclusively Jewish movement. Why would Judaizing Christianity appeal to some there? Because it appeals to their natural sense of prejudice against Gentiles. It appeals to that, 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 that grossness of prejudice. That maybe they ought to be a little bit more Jewish. Maybe we all ought to be a little bit more Jewish. Why would it appeal um, to the Gentiles, to the Gentile citizens of the church? Why? Why would they uh, kind of find that an appealing gesture? Like, it, it, men, you need to be circumcised, and for your household to identify with union in Christ, you must receive the gospel through faith and be circumcised. Why would that be persuasive in a Gentile argument? Why? Well, to be honest with you, I'm not exactly sure. It's a bit more mysterious why Gentiles want to submit to the yoke of Jewish slavery. They don't have people, place, and time with that. It's not a national ethnic identity for them. Um, Then why the appeal? How the persuasion? Um, I think it does have something to do with what we discussed for the last few weeks ago. And that was religious people, Christians as we think of ourselves, are naturally drawn to steps, keys, secrets, anything formulaic to help achieve the spiritual goal. That's not new. Again, we may say the appeal might have come to them that you can have certainty of faith, Assurance, you can have hope, you can have peace. Receive Christ through the gospel. Ah, I have, and I, I'm still struggling. Great, be circumcised. 
fill in the strategy in the 21st century church. I struggle with my certainty, the anchor of my hope in the gospel. Great. Maybe you ought to rededicate your life. Feel a spiritual high. Maybe you ought to go ahead and make sure you pray eight times a day formulaically. Come unto me and let me give you a new yoke and a new burden of certainty. Something to add to your faith. It's really no different. We oftentimes get the attitude, sure, we needed faith at the first, but we need works in the second. Faith gets us started. Works give us surety. Paul says it cannot be that way. Faith, indeed, birthed in us, gives us life. And faith in that same saving object maintains it. To do anything different is to fundamentally change the good news. To change the good news is to have no news at all. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for a few moments on Lord's Day to once again be renewed upon the